today as we open the Word of God and look at from another perspective at what He has done for us and Father what you've done for us through Him may you open the eyes of our understanding that we may truly see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ may we leave here today with our hearts touched by an attribute of yours an aspect of yours that is so critical to who you are and yet we resist it so much and this can only be done by the spirit of the living God So, Father, your word says, Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, nor has it entered into hearts of men. All that you have prepared for those who love you. But your Spirit's been given to us to search the depths of your heart and to reveal those things to us. And today we trust him to do that. As best I know, I've looked in your word, I've prayed, and I'm yielding as best I know how, my heart and my tongue, that you would speak through me only your heart, and only your words, and may we be able to see and grasp and hear, not just with our ears, but with our hearts, what your Spirit's saying to each one of us personally and to us to collectively as the community of believers at Faith Christian Center. And for that, we give you thanks in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I hope you don't mind why. Take a drink. <laughs> I almost blew my voice out yelling he's worthy and it would be worthwhile to lose your voice crying out that he's worthy praise the Lord turn with me to Luke chapter 2 we're going to we've spent the last two weeks I was planning as I mentioned to do a a typical uh, series on Advent preparing for the Christmas for what it really means and to prepare our hearts I just really felt impressed to do a message which extended over two weeks on how to prosper in the pressure that we're under because there's pressure from all sides and we spent the last two weeks looking at that and if you didn't get anything out of that I was preaching to myself so you just got to listen in but I trust it touched some people I've been getting we get some mail with several letters over the last few weeks of people from other parts of the, of the country that are watching online and how the word of God is going out and ministering to people you can't contain the word of God I remember Tony Cook when this pandemic hit uh, uh, almost two years ago he, he sent me a, a text message he said John Paul wrote most of his letters in prison the prison cells could not contain and limit the word of God and it still can't today in fact it will spread it praise the Lord but there's something I want to I go through the Christmas story an aspect of the Christmas story this morning and I want to focus on, on something that this tells us about God about God's character God's nature and that's the nature that God has put, put in us through the Holy Spirit. But we need to look at that nature. So we're going to begin just by going through the, the beginning of the account of the, the Christmas story, the nativity, that's in Luke 2. Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. So he was very much detail-oriented. Doctors take notes. They, they, they write down, you know, they write down the, 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 the visit that they had with you. And they write down what they told you. Nowadays, you can get it off the website. Um, and sometimes you don't want to see what they wrote. Uh, but they, they're very detail-oriented. And so we see Luke's account of everything is very detailed-oriented. So let's begin to read down through this, and I'm going to just make some comments about it. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. See if you can put that up. Came about in these days, you're going to see the detail here. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor of Rome at the time. That all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. 
So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. What that means is to go to where your family lineage comes from. Joseph also went up from Galilee, which is in northern Palestine, to the city of Nazareth in Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. The census was called so that they could take a census for the purpose of taxation. And so um, that's why they're all traveling. Okay. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife. They weren't married yet. They were betrothed. Who was with child. She was pregnant. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, which is the title of this message, because there was no room for them. in the. That is such a powerful statement. There was no room for them in the inn. We've got to keep going or I'll get a different message out of me. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. I want to just kind of breathe some depth into this. Just we, we often read these things and, and we, don't, we don't... I want to go back and try to picture ourselves in this scene because this has really happened. And then I want to read something to you about the journey that they went on. First of all, this is an unknown couple. They're known to us, but in the world at the time, they were unknown. Nobody knew them. They were really probably not very well known in their own community in Nazareth, except the word probably had gotten around that Mary was pregnant and she wasn't married. This is their teenagers. The experts, the theologians estimate she may have been 14, 15 years old. And Joseph, we don't know how, probably older. But here's this young teenage couple with a major problem. They're engaged, and while they're engaged, she's found to be pregnant. She knows why, because she knows the angel Gabriel appeared to her and told her what God was going to do with her. But she can't exactly broadcast that abroad. Who's going to believe you anyway? Well, the way this happened is an angel appeared to me, and he said, I'm going to impreg- the Spirit of God's going to impregnate you with the, with the Messiah, the Son of God. She said, well, I've never known a man. That's okay, he's going to do it anyway. And we did a play, Charlie Benson had written and put on a play a number of years ago here that we did several times at Christmas about what that must have been like. But I want you to show, we're looking here at how God did this. Because what I want to talk to you about this morning is the humility of God. We're going to talk about what He did, how He did it, how He could have done it, how we would have expected Him to do it if we wrote the script, or how certainly anybody that was a master at PR would have done this very differently. But this is how God chose to do it, and it reveals something very powerful about God. So let's look at them a little bit. There Again, as I said, they were a teenage couple unknown to anybody in the world. She was with child but not married and probably had 
was the subject of public disgrace. They had to leave their home. And they had to walk about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I want to read something I found online. And if you want, if you want to see this, it's in my notes. You just have to download the notes. This is an article written above all, by all people in the Los Angeles Times in December 23, 1995. And this is what it says. Uh, just kind of picture this. A newly betrothed couple is forced to register for a cens- census in a town far away. The woman's nine months pregnant. When they finally reach their destination after an arduous journey, there's no place to stay. The woman gives birth in a stable. Scholars and clergy differ on whether the TV stories of Joseph, of the Gospels of Luke and Matthew are historical accounts or just symbolic. But one thing is certain. The world of Mary and Joseph was a difficult and dangerous place, one whose harsh conditions were not fully chronicled in the gospel accounts of their travails. Writers of the gospel of Matthew and Luke are so iconic with about the nativity event because they assume the reader knew what it was like, wrote James Strange, a New Testament and biblical archaeology professor at the University of South Florida. And he added, we have no idea how difficult it was. Joseph and Mary's hardships would have begun more than a week before the birth of their son when the couple had to leave their home in Nazareth in the northern highlands of Galilee to register for a Roman census. They had to travel 90 miles to the city of Joseph's ancestors south along the flatlands of the Jordan River, then west over the hills surrounding Jerusalem and into Bethlehem. It was a fairly grueling trip, wrote Strange, who annually leads an excavation team into the ancient city of Sepphoris near Nazareth in antiquity. Most of, we find most people traveling only as far as 20 miles a day, and this trip would have been very much uphill and downhill and was not simple. Strange estimates that Joseph and Mary likely would have traveled only 10 miles a day because of Mary's impending delivery. The trip through the Judean desert would have taken place during the winter when it's in the 30s during the day and rains he said, like heck. Um, it's nasty and miserable, and at night it would be freezing. To protect themselves during the inclement weather, Mary and Joseph would likely have worn heavy woolen cloaks constructed in sh- uh, to, she- to shed rain and snow. Under their cloaks, the ancient residents wore long robes belted at the waist, tube-like socks, and closed their shoes protecting their feet. And the unpaved hilly trails and harsh weather were not the only hazards Joseph and Mary would have faced on their long journey south. One of the most terrifying dangers in ancient Palestine was the heavily forested valley of the Jordan River. Strange said lions and bears lived in the woods and travelers had to fend off wild boars. Archaeologists have unearthed documents warning travelers of the forest dangers. And bandits Pirates of the deserts and robbers were also common hazards among the major trade routes like the one Joseph and Mary would have traveled. And said also the Reverend Peter Vasco, a Catholic priest and director of the Holy Land Foundation, uh, said, anyway, the threat of outlaws often forced solitary travelers to join travel uh, trade caravans for protection. And Mary and Joseph would have had to bring their own provisions and wine skins they would have to carry their water. They would have to carry their bread. Their breakfast most likely would be dried bread. Lunch would be on the bread, would be oil with the bread, and herbs and oil and bread in the evening. The hardships didn't end when they arrived in Bethlehem. 
Under normal conditions, the pair would have been expected to stay in a spare bedroom with a relative or another Jewish family. However, it was overcrowded there, and it would have forced Joseph and Mary to seek lodging in a primitive inn. It's widely agreed that Jesus was born in a cave used for housing animals. But how realistic are the Renaissance images of Joseph and Mary and the newborn Jesus surrounded by a menagerie of camels, oxen, cows, chickens, pheasants, and peacocks? No. Not very likely, according to Strange, since the stable was part of an inn. The only animals likely to be found there would have been donkeys used for travel and perhaps a few sheep. Both Strange and the other God believe the overcrowded conditions in Bethlehem on the night of Jesus' birth would have resulted in others being close at hand during Mary's delivery. And even though Mary could have had help and the cave may have provided some protection from the elements, the noisy and dirty conditions under which Jesus was born would have made the event anything but warm and wonderful and sweet and comfortable. And God chose to bring His Savior, His Son, the one we just sang about, about how worthy is. God chose to bring His Son into the earth in those conditions. The most humble, meanest, lowest conditions possible. No dignity, no sanity, no sanitary conditions. There wasn't even room at the inn. Why would God do that? To understand the, the power of this, we need to understand something else about the, the, um, the, 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 who this was, about the, excuse me, the pattern of how, of how um, I'm, uh, I got ahead of myself here. Let, let's talk for a minute, and we know the answer to this, but we're, we're meditating on this together. I mean, most of you know the story. You could find it in the Bible, read it. Some of you could recite it. But we're spending some time just, just meditating together trying to bring this out into, real, into relief, real life in our mind, to get the impact of what God was doing here. Let's just talk for a minute about who this little baby is that's born under these conditions. By the way, a little side note here. Just because God calls you to do something doesn't mean it's going to be easy. God called this, man, this woman, an angel said, Blessed are you among women. You are blessed because God has chosen you to be the mother of the Son of God. But the world didn't bless her. Family didn't bless her. The community didn't bless her. And now when she finally comes, she still had to go through the nine months of labor. And every lady that's ever born a child understands it's labor not just at the end, but it's labor all the way through. You're carrying somebody else's life for God, for your family. She had to go through all of that. And now, when it's time, she's not going to be delivering in the warmth and comfort of her home with the relatives around. She's not going to be delivering in, even in the town that she lived in with her, with her betrothed. They have to travel 90 miles through these conditions. They didn't go get on a plane at Bethlehem Airport and have a limousine meet them I mean, uh, in Nazareth Airport, and have a limousine meet them in the Bethlehem Airport and escort them to Our Lady of Mercy Hospital, where there were nurses waiting in the warmth of the labor room. She paid a price. Now, listen carefully. 
That price was paid for you and me. God calls us to bring His message, His Son, into a dark and dying world, and it may cost us also. You may have to journey to places you don't want to go to. We've done that. God may ask you to give up things because what He has to give is infinitely greater than what He asked you to give up. So who is this little baby? What's all this noise about? And, and let's, before we look at the contrast, let's look at who this, who this baby is. I mean, I know you know the answer, but we just spend the time meditating on this. John chapter 1, verse 1. I love John. This is John's version of the, of the Christmas story from God's side. We just read from man's side. This is God's side. In the beginning... Now, I, I read something like that and my, my mind asks, in the beginning of what? Those words are similar to the very first words in Genesis, in the beginning. So what he's talking about is the beginning of creation, the beginning of this realm of existence, the realm that you and I call the world, that we live in, that's existed here for thousands and thousands of years. But before that, God existed. God existed before time, God will exist after time, and God created time for you and I to exist in. In the beginning was the Word. Now, what's that mean? The Greek word there is logos. And what that mean, word, that Greek word logos means is the complete expression of a concept, an idea, or it can be the complete expression of a person. Now, that's theological. Let's use it in a different term. How many times have you ever seen a child grow up and you begin to... No, I have, we have this all the time. Somebody will look at Pastor Chris and say, he doesn't look like you. He looks more like his mother or, 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 or some of our other kids look like you or they don't look like... But because it's natural for your children to resemble you. They're an expression of you. In fact, we are all were children. Were you all children at once? Okay, I just want to sure we all have this in common. Okay, we're all children. So... You are, you are, you are a, an image in one form or another of your parents, whether you like it or not. I've had the experience as I've gotten older, looking in the mirror and saying, I just look like my father. But that's not a shock. It's like, how did that happen? Oh my goodness. No, I may not like it, but it's a natural thing to begin to resemble your parents. But we don't just resemble them physically. How many times have you said something, you swore that you never say because your parents said it to you. Especially with your children. I'll never say that to my kids. And now you find years later, you're saying the exact same thing. Why? Because we just naturally resemble those that we come from. And that's what this is. In the beginning was the full expression of God. The other person of the Godhead. And, and the Word was with God in the beginning. So this Word, this full expression of God existed before the worlds were created. And the Word was God. So this, this being that's the full expression of the Father, the second person of the Godhead, is not only God, but He's with Him at this creation. Next verse. He, oh, now we know He's a person. He was in the beginning with God. Keep going. And all things were made through Him, not for Him, but through Him, and nothing was made that was made. So here we see 
an account of the creation of who was involved in it and the creation was made for the benefit of God the Father but the creation was accomplished by and through this second person of the Godhead. Keep going. And in him was life and the life was the light of man. It was life. In other words, life came from him. And the light shines in the darkness. That's what we're here to do. And the darkness did not comprehend it. That word actually means that darkness did not overcome it. Now we're going to come back to this in a little while. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. We're talking about who, who this baby is. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us directly by His Son. Remember, notice, spoken to us. In the beginning was the Word. So this is God speaking to creation. He spoke to us on whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds. Now go to verse 8. But to the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Your kingdom. Verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, this is talking about this word, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Keep going. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. We'll just stop there. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Isaiah seven fourteen, famous Christmas verse from the Old Testament. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, Mary, shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is Hebrew for God with us. So this baby that we just read about is God. There's a song we, that Priscilla did such a great job last week and she's going to have asked and she's going to do it for Christmas Eve. Oh, I forgot to announce that. Christmas Eve service is 5.30 on Christmas Eve. Right? We're going to last about an hour, hour and 15 minutes or so. And so then you can get out and do whatever you're going to do. But I think God's worthy of giving him at least an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes. But she sang a song, Mary, Did You Know? She's, I've asked to sing that before my message on Friday night. And, and, and there's a line in there, Did you know when you, when you kissed your baby, you kissed the face Let's go back to John. Let's go to John chapter 1 again. Now 9. Verse, was it verse 9? The next verse down in your list. John, yeah, for John, yeah, there you go. Now we're talking about that word again. That was the true light, which is the light to every man coming into the world. Keep going. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So this baby, born in a stable and the only place they could lay him for his first crib we use manger but a manger was a feeding trough for whatever other animals happened to be there and this baby is laid in a wooden or a stone feeding trough created all of these worlds 
He was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. Only Mary knew who he was in Joseph. He came to his own, that's the Jews, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, have you received him? That's five of you. We'll give a big altar call at the end. As many as you received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Who were born, not of blood, not the will of flesh, that's your parents, nor the will of man, that's your parents, but born of, and that Greek word of is the word ek, which means out of God. This little baby laid in a manger is the creator of the universe. Why? Why would God do that? Now understand, we need to see some contrast here. There's a, there's a verse, we're not going to turn there. There's a verse over in, um, in Acts chapter 25 when Paul has been arrested and he is uh, uh, King Agrippa, who was the, the, the Jewish king over the year at the time. They want to see him because he's the big spectacle. And so they, they set up a meeting in the auditorium to come and it says in, in, in Herod Agrippa, and Bernice, who was his sister as well as his wife, we won't go there, came to hear Paul speak, and they came with great pomp. So when a king would come, when an authority would come into a place, they would come with great, with great fanfare. They didn't just show up. There were, there were heralds set before them. We sing, hark the herald angels sing. Those were angels set to herald. They were set to herald. They would send trumpeters ahead. They would send messengers ahead. Why? Because they wanted everybody to get the attention so they could know who it was that was coming and they could come out and give appropriate honor and appropriate recognition to this person that was deserving of honor, at least in their own eyes they were. And that's what, that's what, um, that's what Agrippa and Bernice were doing. Caesar, whenever he come, there was a huge commotion and people were sent ahead of time to prepare the way for his coming. So if, if, if anybody had been entitled to a great fanfare, anybody entitled to a great show, a great demonstration of honor and demanding honor and respect, if anyone would have, it would have been God's son. Oh, by the way, he's coming back. And when he comes back, he doesn't come back as a baby. He comes back in all his glory, showing all his honor. And everyone's going to see who he is. And those that not, not, did not accept him are going to run in fear. But we're not talking about then. We're talking about 2,000 years ago. But he did come with fanfare. He did come with a forerunner that went before him. But it wasn't with somebody throwing a, 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 making a lot of noise. And even the angels that came, they didn't come to the city. They went out to the poorest of shepherds to let them know what was going to come. And they came and honored this baby. But God did send a forerunner. But he didn't come in fancy clothes. He didn't come making a big show and a lot of noise. He came dressed in camel's hair. He came eating wild locusts. And he lived out in the desert, in the wilderness. 
And he spoke words, not of glory, and not, but words of repentance. Because he came to prepare people's hearts to receive this gift that God was giving. Why would God do that? Well, why, why were the king or the, or the emperor come with such great fanfare? Because they're trying to prove to people who they were and they were trying to demand from them respect that the people didn't want to give. It was all based on them. It was all based on them. We're looking at the humility of this God. In fact, Israel that he came to and had been looking for him as the Messiah didn't even recognize him when he came because they thought the Messiah was going to be somebody that was going to deliver them from Caesar, that was going to deliver them from the political oppression. And they didn't realize there was a deeper thing they needed to be delivered from. There was a deeper problem, a root of all of this that was going on in the world around them that they needed to be delivered from, from that. We read how the angels proclaimed, we have great tidings of good news, of great joy. For unto you today there is a son is born, and he's the Savior. And I've done several messages on Catch the Truth, which by the way reminds you, it's on 7.30 Sunday morning. They gave us, uh, not Sunday morning, 7.30 Christmas Day. Catch the Truth is on, on WPRI. So if you're busy with your presence or just tell your friends and neighbors I sat down and did a very special Christmas message and part of it is the message the great joy was a Savior's come to rescue you and we look for great joy in everything else we look for great joy in the presence we look for great joy in the Christmas trees we look this is a miracle time of year yeah but it's the time we celebrate it because God sent a Savior to deliver us from things we don't even know we need deliverance from And he came with absolute humility. He didn't come to prove anything about himself. He came... He did not come to prove anything about himself. He came to rescue us when we didn't know we needed to be rescued. And I know this is Christmas season, but the ultimate proof of it is the Son of God who could have had a thousand angels come to deliver him allowed himself to be arrested, beaten beyond recognition, and nailed to a cross that was made of wood that he created the very soldiers that drove the nails in his hands, their life ultimately came from him. And he's hanging on their dying. And there are people mocking him, taunting him to prove who he was. And Jesus didn't open his mouth because he was not here to prove who he was. He was here to save and to rescue. And when the full venom and the full anger and the full hatred of their taunts was at the highest, dying on that cross, he looks up and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And there were two thieves 
hanging there, one on either side. And one on one side begins to mock him. But the other one saw something in him. He saw that this man was not dying like anybody else he'd ever seen die. And he realized this man does not deserve to be here. This man does not deserve to die. And what he saw in him, he may not have understood it, what he saw in him was this humility. He was willing to give everything up to save us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you. So now he's talking to us. Which was also in Christ Jesus. So this was his mindset. Who being in the form of God, we just saw that in John chapter 1. Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, what that's saying is, if, if, if somebody can only rob you of something that belongs to you. So what he's saying is, he, but was, boil this all down, he was equal with God. He's got to move on. I can't have time to, to break that down for you. Verse, verse 7. He made himself of no reputation. That does not begin to say what the Greek words that this is originally written in say. What those Greek words say, he emptied himself of all of his glory, of all of his power, of all of his honor. He emptied himself of all of that to be born as a human being. And to do that, he entered the human race the exact same way you and I did. He could have just appeared as a grown man and begun his public ministry, but he took no shortcut. He wanted to be so completely identified with you and me that he would not take a shortcut and he came into this world in circumstances that most likely you and I did not. He got so low to become a child, a baby, dependent on those parents to feed him. Do you realize God humbled himself so much that he had to wear diapers? That'll break your religion. What do you think he did? Was a magical, immaculately held it for 33 years? <laughs> he submitted to being, having to be changed, fed by a teenage couple. Put himself into their hands. taking the form of a bond servant. A, a servant is somebody that's forced into servitude. A bond servant has chosen to enter into somebody's service. Coming in the likeness of men, we just looked at that. He, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself even more to become obedient to the point of death. Not just death, but the worst kind of death man's ever come up with, the death of a cross. Have this mind in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. This is explains why. Inasmuch then as the children, that's us, 
partake of flesh and blood. In other words, since God's, these, God's creation, us, since we live in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared the same. So that through death, He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Here, just boil this down the tongue. Maybe when we get to Easter, I'll explain this even more. Mankind, once that first couple sinned, mankind has been under a curse ever since. Because what man, what the very root of that sin was, Satan tempted them to do the same thing he did, which is to take their own lives into, take them out of God's hands and to take their own lives into their own hands and decide that they have better judge of their lives than God is. And you and I have been doing that since we were born. Even when it comes to the things we know God's Word says, we reserve the right to decide for ourselves whether we're going to do it or not. The Bible term for that, you're not going to like this, is rebellion. Rebellion is when you stand against somebody that has authority over you and you refuse to submit to them. And every time we've disobeyed God, every time we've sinned, we've been in rebellion against the character, nature, and authority of God. But that's what grace is for. We're so, we're so full of it, we don't even know we need a Savior. Because we think we're doing pretty well because we compare ourselves with ourselves. I was just reading this morning where Paul warns against that. So I thought I was a good person because I was a good lawyer. And I, by good, I don't mean just that I performed well. I was an honest lawyer. They do exist, right, Richard? Yes, they do exist. Okay, I just want to make sure at least two of us here. Okay. I was an honest lawyer. I know that may be hard for you to believe. But I'm, but I'm, so I, th- I thought I was what good until God showed me his standard out of Matthew chapter 6. He says, be perfect. I was good, but I knew I wasn't perfect. Be as perfect as your father is perfect. God held up to me his standard for entering in heaven. And Paul says, we all fall short of the glory of God. So he came to bear that curse for us, but to do that, he had to become one of us. So he could take the curse that you and I were, had earned and were subject to, he could take that curse for us and bear the curse and the full punishment and the full wrath and anger of God for that curse. He could bear that on himself for you and for me. And in order to do that, he had to become one of us. The difference was he didn't sin where you and I have been good at it. Let's keep going. To release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to the angels, he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be like his brethren, that's us. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest pertaining to the things of God to make propitiation, that means payment, for our sins. The Greek word there for propitiation is the same word that's used when they translated the Old Testament, mercy seat. That he might be the mercy seat 
for the sins of all people. So what did he do? What's this all about? He came to serve, not to be served, while he was on the earth. He went to the outcasts of society, the dregs of society. A leper came to him one day. And there's the ultimate outcast of society because they had COVID-19, I mean they had leprosy. And this man's skin is being eaten away. And so he has to live among other people that are like that. He has to announce when he gets within so many feet of people, leper, unclean, 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 as a warning. And he comes down when Jesus comes off this mountain and he cries out, have mercy on me. I know you can heal me, but I don't know if you're willing. And Jesus, he did the unthinkable. He reached out his hand and he did something this man not had, experienced, had not experienced in years. He touched before he said anything. He touched him and said, Be. John chapter 4, he goes on a journey. And he's going through Samaria. He purposely went through there because that's a land where there was racial tension with the, with the Jews. And at noontime, he stops at a well and sends his disciples into the town to get food. And there's a woman comes up, and we've talked about her before. She comes at noontime because she can't come with the other ladies who come in the more early in the morning when it's not hot. She comes to draw water because nobody's going to be there. Why? Because she's had five failed marriages. After, after a while, you may... She got a reputation. So much so that the man she's living with, she's not married to because she's given up. And Jesus speaks to her. And he reveals to her who he is before he reveals it to anybody else in that town. There's another woman that the, the authorities brought to him because they're, they're trying to catch him. And they throw her down at his feet and said, this woman was caught in adultery, the very act of it. I wonder why they were there anyway. And, and I've always wondered the question. It takes two to tango, if I remember correctly. Where's the guy? Somebody just said, preach that. Some woman just said, preach that. <laughs> Where, where's the guy? So they threw, because they, they weren't interested in what, and they, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. They want to catch him. They want to see if he's going to be merciful and excuse it, in which case they can accuse him of violating the law. Or they're going to see that he's going to condemn her. And Jesus, you know, don't, don't try to outsmart Jesus. He gets down and doodles on the ground and says, Okay, you're right. Under the law, she deserves to be stoned. You're right. But let's talk about who has the right to carry out that sentence. Let him who is without sin, and, and that'll preach today, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. He doesn't deal with whether she deserved to be punished. He deserved with who had the right to administer it. And I love it. It says, and they slowly walked away, starting with the oldest, because he probably had the most to remember. 
He came to serve. He met with the tax collectors. He ate with the tax collectors. They were the outcasts of society. A little short one named Zacchaeus wanted to see him, climbed up in a tree because he was too short to see over the crowd. And Jesus sees him and calls him down. And the crowd's shocked. They all know he's the tax collector. It's not like the IRS agents today. It's worse. These were Jews who were working for the Roman government and they were licensed to collect taxes from their own people and whatever they collected above and beyond what the government required, they kept. So their living was made by bilking and milking you. So they were hated. They were looked down on by the Romans and they were hated by their own people and Jesus calls a short one down out of the tree. He says, come here. He says, I want to eat with you today. I want to go to your house. Drove the religious people up a wall. You know who he's eating with? That's who he came to. Aren't you glad he came to the downcasts and the outcasts? I was in the upper crusts of the law firms and they're just as downcast as people out in the street. They're just as lost. But the problem is people don't see it because they see all the, all the attributes of wealth and success. There's a very high rate of alcoholism among, and divorce among lawyers. There were some of the most broken people I've ever known. I had a lawyer come into my office when it was announced what I was going to do, that I was leaving the law firm to go to study for the ministry. I had people come in and cry sophisticated lawyers. I had one tell me he was jealous. He said, I don't, I'm not free to leave here. It was the, he was hooked by the, by, by, by the wealth. He was hooked by the prestige. He was hooked. And he couldn't let go. It had a hold of him. Jesus came to the outcast, the upcast. It's interesting. I've talked about this before. One of the most powerful verses where it says, and the tax collectors and the sinners came to sit at his feet and hear what he had to say. And my questions always bother me. How come they don't come in here to see what we have to say? What was there about Jesus that drew the sinners to him? I'm going to say something that may shock you. What would have been about Jesus that would have drawn the homosexuals? What would have been about Jesus that drew the adulterers? What would have been about Jesus who drew all the things that we tend to hate today. What was it about? They would have come to sit at his feet and hear what he had to say. Why don't they come and sit at our feet? Is it possible it was his humility? And therefore, is it possible we may not have the same degree of humility? Is it possible? He came to give, not to receive. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin so that He could legally give us His righteousness. You understand where He ended up in heaven? He's back where He started. So He didn't go through all of that to gain anything for Himself other than you and me. He didn't do any of that for Himself. It was all done for people who rejected him, hated him, spit upon him. Some of us were stubborn to receive him, and he did it for us. He came to give, not to receive. John chapter 13, Jesus is preparing to leave. 
He wants to give them a living example of this. Therefore, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, this is his last meeting with his disciples before he goes to the cross, that he should depart from this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That means two different things. It means he loved them to the end of, his, of time, but it also means he loved them to the limit. He held nothing back from them. He gave everything of himself to them. He brought Supper having ended. Now, let's, just to get the scene here, they're in a rented room. It's as if we went to the, the Marriott or someplace and, we, and he hired a, a function room. So typically, if you went to a, a, a person's house that had any kind of money or any kind of, uh, of, of a house, they would have a servant whose job was to wash your feet when you walked in that house. It was given to the lowest, most menial servant in the household. And most likely you wouldn't even realize there was such a habit. You walk in the door, somebody's greeting you, this servant would be down on their knees, take your, your sandals off because you've been wearing open sandals through dirty, dusty streets. And they would wash your feet with a basin and with a towel and then you would either go in without your sandals or w- I don't know what they wore for that. But anyway, so this was a servant's job. But this is a rented room. There's no servant here. But there's a towel and there's a basin of water. Supper having ended, the devil having already put in the heart of Judas to carry Simon's son to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he come from the Father and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. Now you've got to just imagine this scene. I know it's getting late, but that's a scene. There's, there's, there's 12 of them, and there's Jesus. And they're, sitting, they're not sitting at a table like you and I do. It's a low table, and they're reclining on pillows. So your face is in your neighbor's feet, or your, his feet are in your face. But whenever Jesus would do anything, I have to imagine that whatever you're talking to, your eyes are, where's he going? What's he going to do? And he gets up, and he goes over to where this towel is in this basin, and he takes off his outer garments, and he takes the towel, and he wraps himself in the towel. Verse 5. And after he poured water in the basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he's girded. He's doing the job that nobody else there did. Everybody in that room would have been aware that nobody washed their feet. And notice they didn't wash their own and they surely didn't offer to wash one another's because there was always vying among the staff about who's going to be in what place. I mean, at one point, James and John's mother comes to Jesus with a special request that when you enter your kingdom, may one of my sons sit on your left and one on your right. I've always wondered, who did she want to sit on? Because the right was the most prestigious. Who was her favorite? I'm sure John was. And then they came to, he came to Simon Peter and Simon said, Lord, you're washing my feet? Now, I can't get off on this too far, but if, if, in the Greek text, I know, in the Greek text, there's a much more powerful statement here. He's saying, you, my feet are washing? In other words, Peter's saying, no, you shouldn't wash my feet. I should be serving you and washing your feet because of who you are. Look what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now. But you will know after this. 
Isn't that nice to know he's patient with us? Peter said, now look at Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. I'm too humble. That's what he's saying. I'm too humble to have you. I know who you are. God revealed to me before any of the rest of these who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you acknowledge God showed that to me. And you're not washing my feet. I'm too humble for you to wash my feet. Remember we're talking about humility this morning. Look what Jesus says. He answered, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So now Peter is going to flip it over. So Simon Peter said, Lord, not my... Now listen to what Peter had just said. Jesus heard a... And Jesus said, No, you're not going to wash my feet. So Jesus... Peter's telling Jesus what to do. That's rebellion. And we do it all the time. We're just more subtle. Simon Peter said, Lord, they're not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. There's another example. He's not doing what Jesus said to do, when to do. He wants to do something special. Something different from the others. In the end of chapter of John, when Jesus is restoring Peter and they're walking out by the water, and Peter, Jesus comes to Peter and says, do you still, do you, do you love me more than these? There's a lot of debate about what the these are. Some people think it's the fish or fishing. I think it's very clear what it is. Peter believed he loved Jesus more than any of the other disciples. And G- Peter's, Jesus is saying, do you still think you love me? Because he now denied him three times. Do you still think you love me more than the rest of these? And Jesus uses the word agape. Do you still think you agape, which is the God kind of love? And Peter says, no, you know I love you. The Greek word's phileo. It's just a brotherly love. So Jesus, and Jesus tells him, feed my sheep. He's recommissioning him. He says it again. Do you still love me more than these? Agape. Peter says, no, I, I, I phileo. I, I'm fond of you. I appreciate you, but I don't say I love you that way anymore. I found out where I'm, my love for you really is. And then Jesus comes to his level and says, do you still phileo me? He comes to where Jesus, Peter's love is and recommissions him. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs to wa- not only to wash his feet. That means once you've been saved, once you've been washed in the blood, you get your feet dirty through the life. You just need to go and get forgiveness. But it's, com- it's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. Now, this is what I wanted to get to. Go ahead. For he knew he was going to betray him, but not, your, not all of you are clean. Keep going. When he washed their feet, he took his garments again and sat down again. He said, do you know what I've done to you? No, this, I did. This is a... This is an acted out parable. I'm teaching you something. You call me teacher and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to be washing one another's. If I have served you, not just by water on your feet, but I've served you by coming to this earth, in the humblest of form, taking on me your flesh and your sin, and I am going to bear that sin for you. I'm going to serve you by taking your sin, your failures, what you've done wrong, I'm going to take them on me. So you don't have to bear them because they'll kill and destroy you. Then you need to do the same thing for one another. 
And how can we dare think that we can't forgive somebody? How can we dare think we have the right to hold anything against someone Jesus has died for? How do we... I'll tell you how we dare think it. It's pride. It's the pride that Peter exhibited. I'm somebody because I go to church. I'm somebody because I tithe. I'm somebody because I pray. I'm somebody because of something I did. No, you're somebody because Jesus humbled himself and bore your sins. Because, listen to me, if he hadn't humbled himself and bore your sins and you still had the attitudes you had, you would have been fried on the spot. It's his humility that did nothing to defend himself, did nothing to promote himself. His whole existence from the very moment of conception until he's raised from the dead was with you and me in mind to save us and redeem us ungrateful as we are, selfish as we are, prideful as we are, arrogant sometimes as we are, unthinking, unfeeling, lazy, sluggish towards God as we are. He gave it all so you would have the grace to be able to ask for forgiveness from God, the grace to live another day, the grace that God could entrust gifts to you to serve Him. And we're so lazy about these gifts, casual about these gifts. One of the greatest gifts we have is one another. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. one of my favorite scriptures. Come unto me, all ye that are weary, and heavy laden and I will give you rest what wearies us and what wears us down is trying to take care of ourself to promote ourself to protect ourself to advance ourself to defend ourself and I tell you now that will wear you completely out it's only as you die to yourself Jesus said to come after me you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and then you can follow me. He denied himself. He took up a cross for you and me. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is a strong message. But what, Jesus, what God did in sending His Son in that low form is so powerful. It's so powerful. God wants to wake us up from where we are and to clothe us with His humility towards one another and His humility towards God. We have no right before God to present ourselves in anything other than the grace that He's lavished upon us is the same grace he's lavished upon your family family members, the down and out, the ones that are in prison, their family members, the, the parts of our society that the church looks so down on. I'm not condoning what they do, but God doesn't condone what he does, but he's died for them. How dare we? How dare we look down our nose? Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. What does he want us to learn of you? I'm meek 
and I'm lowly of heart. I don't think much about myself. I don't think down on myself, but I didn't come here about myself, Jesus said. I came here completely for you. And the greatest freedom you'll ever experience, the greatest rest you'll ever rest, is when you lay your life down and protect, stop protecting and pretending, presenting yourself and you begin to give your life to Him. He can fill you with His own presence and His own life. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning. We ask You to continue to open our eyes, to touch us, with the humility that you displayed when your son was born and laid in that feeding trough in that stable or cave where there was no room for him in the end. Touch our hearts. You've put his nature, you've put his character in us. This character, this humility is in us but it lies dormant under ourself and all the messages that are in the world and in so much of the church today about self. May your Spirit open our eyes to deliver us from ourselves that we may rest in the rest that you've offered to us. Pour out your Spirit upon us in our quiet times alone Pour out your Spirit in us in our times here in worship and in celebration as we go through the rest of this season. Pour out your Spirit of humility upon us that you may break our hearts and open our hearts to the love that you have for this dark and dying world and the downcasts and the upcasts and the outcasts that you may do your will in us, for us, and through us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I know I went over a little bit this morning and I just felt this was so strong. It's worth an extra couple of minutes. I'm going to close in just a second.